RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. This is Reality Check Radio. I want to welcome to the program Piers Robinson. Dr. Piers Robinson is a political scientist, currently a co-director of the Organization for Propaganda Studies, editor of Propaganda in Focus, and serves on the board of directors of the International Center for 9-11 Justice. Now, he's also a member of Berlin Group 21 and Panda, convener of the Working Group in Syria, Propaganda and Media, an associated researcher with the Working Group on Propaganda and the 9-11 Global War on Terror. He served on the boards of several academic journals. And he's here to give us his expertise on propaganda. And Piers Robinson, welcome to our radio station. Thanks for making some time from Berlin for us. Uh, Thank you. It's good to be with you. Are we awash in propaganda right now? What seems like a tsunami of it compared to, let's go back, well, I mean, how far back do we have to go um, to say that it it didn't feel like it was kind of like that? Yeah. Well, in a way, we have been awash with propaganda for a very long time. And, you know, for people who studied the history of propaganda across the course of the 20th century and looked at the key thinkers such as Walter Lippmann, Eddie Bernays, um, you'll see that these techniques of manipulation, manipulation of people's beliefs and behavior um, developed during the 20th century. Um, and uh, I always quote uh, Eddie Bernays making his comment about why they invented the term public relations. He said, we invented the term public relations because the Germans in the First World War gave propaganda a bad name. And so we had to invent a new branding for it. So one of the problems for people across democracies is that there has been a rebranding exercise that uh, persuasion, manipulative persuasion techniques, which would have been once been called propaganda and were, in fact, advocated by some, such as Walter Lippmann and and Eddie Bernays, as necessary parts of governance, even in a democracy. Um, that, that, that reality has been erased from people's minds and people think of oh, public relations or strategic communication. So it is always for a very long time we've been surrounded by propaganda. We just call it different things. The question you pose is to, is it worse now? I, I would say that there does seem to be an intensification of the levels of propaganda. Um, if you look at COVID-19, if you look at the, the the extremely limited autonomy of entities such as the mainstream media or academia, even uh, which you know historically is supposed to offer some kind of you know check against um, propaganda, these organisations are weaker than ever um, in terms of their even limited autonomy. And so I think all of that means that, you know, that there's a lot of effort and energies put into propaganda by powerful actors. Um, and the resistance to it is, is far less, at least from our established institutions. And so I think we are awash with it. And and, and I think as, as you, we talked a little bit about Ukraine, for example, and you mentioned a very one-sided narrative on Ukraine. It is, it is tremendously one-sided. And as somebody who's tended to focus on looking at war and conflict in media and propaganda. Um, it For sure, it's it looks extremely biased media coverage, extremely propagandized. So I, I, I think it's a reasonable argument to make that it's got worse. We're in a worse situation now that there's more propaganda than we've seen before. But it has always been there for a long time. 
And it seems the practice of it has become more masterful. I've heard it um, described as military grade kind of propaganda now. Um, to to get to where we are now and the sophistication of it, do we have to track the evolution of of media? Does it go sort of hand in hand with the um, the distribution of media, the uh, the technology of media? Is that is that what's allowed it to get to this military grade level? Well, I, I think you know, he's saying the twentieth century, um, you know, governments, authorities, and powerful actors engaging in propaganda sort of rested upon corporate legacy mainstream media having a big audience and you can get the message out if, if you can co-op those entities you can get your message out to a wide audience um, now we of course and for some time we've had the internet and i think that that medium provides on the one hand it has provided this opportunity to challenge propaganda so you have independent media you have a, a lot more voices being heard and so on but at the same time, it provides an awful lot of opportunities for propagandists to try to influence behavior. And so you see this in terms of you know, the debates around bots, algorithms, targeting, and so on. Um, and so as, as much as there's this kind of empowering, liberating potential of internet, internet technology, it also is a powerful resource tool for propagandists. So I think in terms of understanding propaganda, yes, you need to look at the, the medium of the day um, and, and how it's shifted. And, and I think in some ways, I, I think it's a, we're actually going through a period of, of a very real struggle between over the internet, between um, its emancipatory potential um, to actually sort of start to put a check on propaganda and those who are using it as an opportunity to you know, push propaganda and so on. And it's a struggle, which, and it's not clear who has won yet. Well, that's an interesting, um, it's an interesting struggle, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you've got it being used as a propaganda medium. And some would argue that, that those using it for that are also trying to alter its use or, or frame its use on the other side as a disseminator of disinformation. So yeah. <laughs> it's a real arm wrestle that's going on. Yeah, th this is one of the key developments and one of the most worrying developments at the moment, because, you know, obviously, you know, you've invited me on to talk about propaganda. Um, and, you know, people generally understand propaganda as this kind of promotion of X, Y and Z. Um, but of course, you know, propaganda also involves censorship and controlling information flows. And that's the big battle that we're having, because I, I think to an extent there has been this strengthening of independent voices through the Internet. And we, we've seen that play out um, across multiple settings, including COVID-19. Um, but clearly there is now a drive as, as you say to um engage develop this these concepts of disinformation malinformation misinformation and effectively integrate that with the online harm safety legislation that you're seeing emerging across multiple democratic settings and the very real danger there is that you know you, you have i think matt taibbi refers to it as the um uh industrial uh, indu 
industrial censorship complex, I think that's the yeah, phrase that's, he uses. Other people yeah. refer to it as the counter disinformation industry. But you have this kind of fact checking, we're, we're fighting, uh, um, we're fighting misinformation, disinformation, etc, starting to become integrated with legislation. Um, which requires social media companies to start to sort of edit out, as, as it were, alleged disinformation. And there you just got straight that this is effectively censorship. This is essentially removing from public debate um, issues and, and, and so on, which are being discussed by people and using this language, this discourse of disinformation in order to do it. And so we're almost moving from this sort of, if, if the 20th century, there's a lot of propaganda and pushing of messages through mainstream media. Now with the internet, there seems to be this move at the moment to actually try and get really quite sort of old fashioned, just control, actually censoring, stopping people from saying some things and so on. Um, and that's a very big development at the moment. And it's a very worrying one. And we're going to have to see how that plays out. But that certainly is, you know, the, a key site of struggle. And for sure, as you say, that's the card that's being played by authorities and elites, that they are trying to present people such as you, me, anybody who's questioning um, authority narratives um, as essentially you know, disinformation or what's the old term they used to use, conspiracy theorists. Yeah, that all one's worn a little thin people. now. Yeah. Um, that one's worn exactly. So they've <laughs> had to re they've had to replace it. It's a bit like Eddie Bernays replacing propaganda with public relations. They've they had to ditch the conspiracy theory because yeah, people find a new term. Yeah. So so they've they've got disinformation um, or malinformation is the worst if, if you have not heard of that yet. No, that's a new one. But I can see how that, it that is accurate that. information. Yeah. accurate truthful information but which might challenge authorities or undermine oh. trust in governments mal yeah okay so, so you, you can see how you know you can rule out large swathes of debate with these mechanisms so this is this is a, a real potential sort of architecture i think with the online harm legislation and then the counter disinformation industry this is the architecture of quite direct censorship um, across uh, democracy. Very worrying, very worrying. I'm sure there are patterns that we can see through, well, at least the modern era of media, maybe, but even maybe further back than that. And I'm thinking, you know, the 30s and the tech, the propaganda techniques uh, employed by Goebbels and the Nazis. And that is repetition, big lie, repetition, um, very high production values on the propaganda uh, media material. I think distribution through radio, uh, even providing free radios for that. I guess if the internet existed then, we'd be probably seeing the same techniques being deployed now um, done then, because it, it seems to me that the, the basic tenets don't change much. Would that be correct? I I, I think that's a, that's a reasonable kind of argument to make that you know the technologies might change, but but you see a, a pretty similar set of techniques. And as you you know that there, there is the there was the Institute for Propaganda Analysis set up in the 30s, which was just closed down in the late 30s, I think, um, as the Second World War broke out. And, and they did list sort of all of these kind of techniques, these sort of how you these psychological techniques to play upon people's. Um, perceptions and understandings. And, you know, in some ways, it, it, they are very similar. So when you look at wartime propaganda, and what does wartime propaganda involve? In the First and the Second World War, it involves demonizing the enemy, it, uh, sort of maintaining your own position as the morally legitimate high ground, and so on. And how much has that changed over time? 
very, very little. I mean, you look at the sort of Gulf War One, um, you know, Saddam Hussein, Kuwait, um, and Operation uh, Desert Storm. And you, you had the comparisons between Saddam Hussein and Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Yeah. Pull upon that historical narrative. Uh, we see it now, of course, with Ukraine and Russia and Putin. So, you know, you demonize, you, um, you talk up your own side, you talk up your own military victories, for example, in, in, in a situation of conflict. Fear, the use of manipulating people's fears is clearly a big component of major propaganda campaigns. We've seen that um, so- brutally, haven't we, recently? COVID is a total expression of the use of fear and propaganda. Pure yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, th- th- there was a great book by um, uh, Dodds, Dodsworth, um, uh, State of Fear, which was published in about 2021, which talked about, and it, it did a very good job of, of map- mapping the way that uh, behavioral scientists have been brought in to advise government. And there was actually a document, which not a leaked document, it was actually just in the public domain early on in COVID. And it, and it talked about sort of raising the, the, the levels of fear or the perception of fear amongst the population. And certainly with COVID, you know, there's a strong case to be made that there was you no know, systematic exaggeration of threat levels, terrifying the population into compliance with policies such as lockdown into injections and so on subsequently uh, as the event uh, rolled on but yeah that that is fear and of course it's this is the great this is one of the great fears isn't it in capsizing see it in hollywood movies that the viral outbreak and so on and you know when people are scared um they become very easy to manipulate and you know the parallel parallels there between 9/11, for example, and um, COVID-19 were, were pointed out by myself and others that you know there you had this kind of the menace of alleged Islamic fundamentalist terrorism was then used to underpin a whole series of wars in in the international system, um, playing upon people's fear, exaggerating fear levels. Um, in order to do things politically, uh, it's very clear in the case of 9-11. Um, so, you know, that's, a, that's a, a regular sort of strand of propaganda uh, playing upon people's fears uh, and so on. Um, the other less studied and less understood component, and we sort of hinted at this before, is, is this question of the censorship side of things. And I think that's another thing which has become very clear over COVID-19 that or during COVID-19 is that one of the sort of major things that has, is done in order to maintain a narrative is to silence dissent. And so I, I talked about this in the paper for Panda, talking about the role of smearing uh, academics, for example, who are questioning COVID-19. You see this in wartime with people expressing dissent, being attacked, smeared. Ukraine, John Mir, Professor John Mearsheimer, a very mainstream, you know, very reputable US professor of international politics, being attacked and smeared for questioning the war in Ukraine. And so this kind of this is a kind of this aggressive underbelly side of propaganda. It's not just about pushing a line or, or manipulating people's perceptions, you know, in, in a kind of in a, in a constructive sense. It's also about just trying to stamp on people who are questioning that. Um, and, you know, that's been very clear. I, mean, I think the, the really clear example of COVID-19 that sticks out in my mind is, of course, the Great Barrington Declaration, which was 
issued, I think, in 2020, saying, look, you know, we don't need to lock down. We can we can deal with this um, issue in a way that we would deal with any other respiratory virus that's circulating. It doesn't require these extraordinary measures. And there was, of course, uh, an email uh, between Collins and Fauci talking about, well, we need a, a, an aggressive takedown of the Great Barrington Declaration. Yes. Is that in preparation? It was. They were setting up a smear campaign to uh, intimidate, um, to discredit, and to disgrace those academics, such as Bhattacharya, um, Sanetra Gupta, uh, Martin Kulldorff, to just destroy their reputations. And you know this has happened in huge at a huge level, a very high level in case of COVID nineteen. Of course, it always was happening before. I mean, for people such as me who are looking at Syria, for example, we were getting hit and smeared. Wikipedia pages being tendentiously edited and so on. So this this has gone on for a long time, but it's become much more obvious in the case of COVID-19. But I think, you know, that kind of just trying to crush, you know, you you control the narrative by crushing the dissent. Um, I mean, uh, have you heard of the American playwright C.J. Hopkins? He's based here in Berlin. No, I haven't. So some of you have used my, but he, he's a very sort of produced a lot of critical, you know, uh, commentary, and you know he's he's a satirist, he's a playwright on the COVID nineteen response, um, and he's just being prosecuted by the German authorities, um, being threatened with either jail or a fine. I think I might have heard uh, of the story for a couple of tweets, for a couple yeah. of tweets where he sort of uh, put Lauterbach, the health minister, <laughs> and put it next to the cover of his book, which was talking about the new normal, etc. In Germany, the new Reich, etc., um, and you know that that's a good example of you know crushing dissent, coercive measures in order to try. You've got to maintain your propaganda narrative. The biggest problem you've got are people questioning it or telling the truth, yeah. and so on. Julian Assange, of course, is perhaps the, the preeminent leading example of this. WikiLeaks uh, revealing evidence of Western involvement in war crimes during the global war on terror. And, you know, Julian Assange is sitting in a prison in Britain facing extradition to the US and potentially the rest of his life in jail in America on trumped up charges. Um, so it seems a very... Purely- vindictive treatment of him particularly it's just it's, it's disgusting i mean as as, as a british citizen i'm you know ashamed mm-hmm. of yeah. my country's involvement in that but but that's but that's what they do so you know propaganda gets very ugly especially when it gets into this censorship coercion suppression of dissent it gets very ugly and 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 very yeah, there are other examples from history which are even more severe, but um, you know, let's just stick with these high-profile, well-understood well ones. Given how ugly and how aggressive, you know, your description of it there is of an aggressive, you know, very destructive um, kind of attitude. Um, the psychology of the production then of propaganda. Do you have to believe what you're saying? Is that part of it, or is it so cynical? that you'll kind of say anything that gets you what you want and how, why they want that, hard to say. Or do you have to actually believe what you're saying for it to really bed in and work? I mean, Goebbels, for example, he was an absolute disciple of the Fuhrer, wasn't he? I mean, he, he was he was all in. So he obviously believed yeah. that he was fundamentally coming from something that he believed in. 
I wonder if we, is there a link? Can we can we say that you have to believe it for it to be very powerful? Well, that's an interesting question, and and it's a question which you can, in a sense, apply both to the propagandists, the promoters of a narrative, but also the people who are the targets of it. And, and let's deal with the propagandists first. I mean, first of all, I think that some people involved in, and let's call it, use Eddie Bernays' term, public relations, um, are fully aware that what they're doing is, is pushing a narrative. So if, if you go to a PR company and you, you're a celebrity and you say, oh, I've got a bit of a bit of a problem here, you know, I've been caught in this situation and you know, get, getting me some good publicity around this, you know, you know exactly what you're doing. You're pushing your client's agenda. You, you don't necessarily care whether your client was is guilty or not in, in a particular case. You know, you're just promoting a positive image and so on. And you know exactly what you're doing and you know that you're not there to tell the truth. You're there to simply sort of serve your client. And I think some people involved in propaganda probably think along those lines. But then at the same time, a lot of people, I think, and this is where this kind of interesting question about the interface between propaganda and ideology comes in, is that, you know, some of this is, is ideological. So people actually believe this worldview, which they are then aggressively promoting and using propaganda to do it. So they're true believers. They're not simply the cynical propagandist. And, you know, the, I think the fact of the matter is that some people, yes, yeah, some people do know exactly what they're doing and they're cynical, but others quite possibly not. Um, in my own experience in the realm of war and conflict, um, and, you know, I used to sort of get invited out to NATO college in Rome. They don't do that anymore for me. A little bit too critical for them, I think. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you, you did get a strong sense. You know, a, a lot of the people who, who I met were very much believed in what they were doing. Um, but you'd also often find at those kind of events that the more sort of worldly-wise sort of foreign... Uh, foreign policy, uh, foreign office type uh, character who, who was very frank and honest about, well, yes, well, we know that that's not really the case, but, you know, we're going to tell the public this. And this is what we have to do in order to, you know, protect the state for reasons of state, etc. Um, and so you, you, you always had that difference. And I think that's the reality. Some people are true believers. Some people have you know, uh, is are coming at this from an ideological perspective. Others know full well that they are there to just perform a role and they're pushing a line and they don't care much for the truth, etc. cetera. Um, and, you know, how much that varies across different issues. I mean, I, I, it, issue areas and so on uh, in different contexts, probably great. It varies to a great degree. But I, I think there's a mixture in there. And it's worth keeping that in mind when you think about propaganda. This is also about, as it were, the propagation of ideology as well, as well as very sort of cynical action that's going on. But on this point about people who are the targets of propaganda, you know, and this is kind of sort of an interpretation of your question, you know, it's not just about getting people to believe, yeah, um, it's getting people to acquiesce, to just give up. Whether they believe what you're saying about Ukraine and Putin or whether you you believe what they're saying about COVID-19 and how dangerous it is, et cetera, doesn't really matter. The important thing is that you're going to, followed the rules you're going to comply and so on and and i think that's one of the big sort of kind of sort of stories of, of propaganda and publics especially in the west is that you, you find that you know a, a lot of people don't believe the official arguments on covid 
let me think about the JFK assassination, which, of course, Bobby Kennedy has been talking about extensively. Yeah. The CIA did it. Basically saying <laughs> no, that no they did that. it. Yeah. They did it. Um, and what you find is, you know, a lot of American public have, have, have held that view for a long time. A lot of people don't believe um, the, the official narrative. But, you know, they go along. They comply that they think that resistance is futile and so on, and so I, I, I think you know that's an important thing to keep in mind. Propaganda isn't about people just being brainwashed; it's also about people just going, "I'm not even going to try because yeah, there's no point." <laughs> yeah, um, here's a, an interesting thing. You mentioned nine eleven, and I'm wondering if we look at uh, of and let's take that as an example. If you look at how the propaganda surrounding an incident like that, and there has been some because it led to well, some wars, it led to a, a huge unlocking of, uh, you know, military industrial complex spending, probably a trillion dollars worth. It led to the overthrow of uh, leaders and governments. If you had to look at the propaganda deployed around something like that and reverse engineer, you know, that back to source where something happened, can we get an idea of of the reality of of what happened? By doing that, is there, is there a sort of like a, a reverse engineering path of the propaganda that can take us to some kind of understanding of what actually happened? Um, I mean, if I follow you correctly, are you saying that by, by analysing the propaganda surrounding in some way get, which is, you know, you're saying is, is a deception or a lie, you can somehow get unpick to the it. truth of what, unpick yeah. it. Mm. Well, yeah. okay, I mean, I think it might be a bit of an out there question, but you know, no, no, I, I think it's an interesting idea because I mean, first of all, on, on 9-11, you know, there is substantial evidence of that this the official narrative is not true, that it's not correct. Now, some people take this down the road of, well, Saudi Arabia did it. And of course, there has been recent uh Biden administration has released documents inside showing job. Between air, they Saudi. weren't airplanes, they were missiles that goes on. Then and on. then there's there's the argument that there was involvement from within the US with with the attacks. And again, the evidence on that front is very, very strong. If you look at the engineers and architects who look at the building collapses, for example, and these aren't necessarily um non-mainstream as the Hulsey study at Alaska Fairbanks is very clear about the building collapse on WTC7 that this thing mm. came down and it was deliberately brought down mm. for, as a result of fires etc so you know the, the, the official the evidence against the official narrative is, is pretty overwhelming at this point in time in relation to 9-11 the question of, of whether you can take all of the propaganda and see it and, and then start to trace back I think on, on the one hand I, I think that Yes, it does. If you understand the narrative which is being pushed and promoted and you approach it from kind of the angle of propaganda analysis, I think that starts to open up the possibility for you to think, say if you're just a, a, an ordinary member of the public, to think, okay, what is being pushed here? And then you think, you know, what are the interests possibly? What might they be trying to achieve with what I'm being told? And of course, as you said, with, with 9-11, this thing, it wasn't just, you know, led to a few wars. This thing was the instigating mechanism for the global war on terror. Yeah. 
and you know it's, it's incredible so if you go back with the Chilcot report in in the UK into the Iraq invasion you see all these documents these conversations between Bush and Blair in the weeks after 9-11 they're talking about regime change wars they're talking about when to hit Iraq Syria Iran countries which mm. were totally unconnected with 9-11 thing. yeah exactly so so you think well okay I'm being told that there's this great threat you know might there be other interests at work and so on and and you can start to see well okay with 9-11 and with a global war on terror is, is this being used to mobilize my consent to in, manufacture my consent for wars in the international system which possibly have nothing to do with the official narrative of uh, al-qaeda and, and and so on and so forth so i i think you know having this kind of skeptical my and thinking okay well, why am i being told this what might be the agenda behind it and then in a way and perhaps this links to what we were talking about before you know one of the red flags is if there's censorship going on if people are being closed down if people are being accused of being conspiracy theorists um or any other kind of derogatory label um especially if that starts to include say researchers and academics um then you've got to say hey wait a minute is is you know why are they having to do that and then this is one of my arguments about covid 19 early on is that whereas many of us were, were happy to be quite open-minded is is there a real is there a real really dangerous virus circulating which is justifying these responses let's keep an open mind to it and so on one of the indicators for me was that look look at these high profile scientists who have been closed down and smeared in the media you know people who are not in any sense outliers in mm, the academic mm, mainstream they were up to that, that point. that's yeah. a that's a that's a that's a big sign so you can look at the sprint you can look at that kind of censorship thing well okay this is this should tell me something this should tell me that you know why is it that authorities or somebody in power is choosing to have to smear and attack people is that not a sign that there's something else going on there is in fact a deception going on um i this is from my own personal experience with looking at syria i mean w- when we set up the working group on syria uh, in 2018 you know within days we had smear pieces being written by a former guardian journalist against us and we, we not, not even published anything we just said that we're interested in syria we're interested in <laughs> so you're trying on a, a landmine or something <laughs> trying on a landmine and and then sort of you know and then this is surrounding the events of the alleged chemical weapons attack in Douma in 2018 yeah. i mean we were on the front page of the times newspaper as a sad apologists four articles in the times of london uh, editorial calling for our jobs and this was a group wow. of pretty unknown academics in the uk sort of saying oh we, we want to look at syria and the question of propaganda being slammed onto the front page of the times and they were obviously going for our jobs obviously that was the, that was well the that's intention. the other thing it's very nasty isn't it they, they're willing they are willing to destroy people's careers livelihoods reputations yeah. without really a thought uh, absolutely nothing. And so, uh, as just to finish my point so that that showed us we were right over the target but yeah. for a, a critical audience looking at that it, you know the the question which should be raised is why on earth yeah why on earth are they jumping all over these people in this way um and that's a good sign that something else is going on and you know can set you on the path to actually finding out what did 
what did happen and so on. Um, and so I, I think I think you know your, your question is it's a good one. So it's a, it's a good way of thinking about this. That, you know, thinking critically about the propaganda does take you down a road which allows you to start to unpack and get closer to the truth. Because I, I do think we we do live in a world where there are truths. I'm not a postmodernist. I don't agree with that mode of analysis. Yeah. Um, and you know, one of our tasks is whether it, we're researchers or journalists or members of the public, citizens, one of our tasks is to try to, you know, evaluate information, work out what we think is the truth about an issue and so on. It's very important that we do that because if we don't have that, we're kind of lost and so on. Um, and and I think there are many other sort of, you know, telltale signs of propaganda which do allow people to, you know, with sufficient time and energy to actually start to get a better understanding of what's going on. Um, and more truthful and accurate understanding of what's going on. And many people do that right. People have done that with the JFK assassinations, uh, assassination and the other assassinations from the 70s, 60s and 70s. And if you look at the volume of really quite high quality research done by people, both, you know, credentialed academics, but also, you know, independent researchers, you know, a, a lot of people do engage in that. And, you know, in a sense, the truth is out there as it were yeah. in, in spaces it's just you're not going to find it in the legacy media because well, they I, are. I, I want to ask you about that because um there does seem to be a uh, a high level of cooperation you just talked about the hit pieces on you in reputable um publications with you know journalistic ethics underpinning them through their history so you know we kind of rely on that we've had a case here just in the last few weeks in our country that's been sort of unmasked, and that is that the government paid our state-funded television network and a um, a private um, uh, newspaper network to play stories on climate. And you know, two hundred thousand dollars worth of stories on on the the private entity, three hundred thousand dollars worth of stories in the run up to the last COP Egypt meeting, climate meeting, and they engaged experts. It turned out it had all been chosen as part of the package. It was never declared. They never said, hey, this is paid for advertising, by the way. And it, you know, it was effective because it was quite a debate at the time. This co-opting of media, where's this come from, do you think? Well, I mean, in some ways, it's been known for a long time, at least in the critical political communication literature, that uh, legacy media, mainstream media, is its proximity to political and economic power is is well, its uh, its proximity is, is not in question. That there is a, a big overlap between um, the power structures in government and, and economics and corporate legacy media. Um, there's the seminal text, Herman and Chomsky propaganda model, and they talk about the filters which operate on the mainstream media. Um, and, you know, and, and this has been known for a long time. And of course, what it means is that the, the liberal kind of assumption that the press is there is, is an adversarial, hostile watchdog which keeps a check on power is simply not true. Um, you know, the, the, the classic formulation with the propaganda model from Ed Herman and Chomsky, which is not really, it's not, it is their sort of formulation, but they're actually drawing upon a wider range of literature, which talks about these various things. You know, they, they make a point that, you know, legacy media are, are big corporations. Um, and they, these big corporations have interests which overlap with other powerful actors. Um, and so they have interests, they have agendas ultimately. And so, 
um, it becomes very difficult for journalists who want to sort of, if you're working for the Murdoch, a Murdoch newspaper, and you so want back, to run a story the line, yeah. questioning yeah. Um, yes. the Murdoch family, you're not going to get very far. Yeah, true. And yeah. so on. So it, 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 that's part of the problem. Um, but there are also problems with the kind of uh, journalistic practices where you have this kind of reliance on official sources, deference to official sources. We, we see it with COVID-19 and also with the whole fact-checking industry. Decided, you, well, the World Health Organization is the authoritative source on this issue and so on. And journalists defer to that. So they're, 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 they're terribly um, deferential in the way they operate to a very large extent. But, you know, but there is this kind of sort of underbelly of this sort of, of, sort of you know, they have to tow the line because they don't want to lose their jobs. And there's these kind of economic incentives. Well, well I was just thinking about the example you gave me, you know, the Guardian sort of having a go at, at you and your colleagues. You know, someone decided to do that. Someone decided mm. to write that. And it sounded like it didn't take long for that to, for the incoming to to come in. So, you know, I'm just wondering how that works. Well, well, yeah, I, I was—I suppose I was approaching it from a, from a kind of a, a tactically safe position of sort of the broader sort of structures of control. The other issue, which I think you're possibly alluding to, is this question of more direct interventions, say from intelligence services um, or government officials. Yeah, do they? Someone ring um, up and say, "Okay, we're going to get this guy. Here's the story. Report it." Well, you, you, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the you know the church hearings in committee in the U.S. in in the 70s um, when it transpired that there was quite a few CIA operatives across the American media. Yeah. Um, now we could all say, well, maybe that was just a Cold War back in the seventies. It doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, it'd be very surprising if there was not a degree of overlap between the intelligence services and the corporate media with people who are in the corporate media who are close or simply operatives. Um, yeah. You know, there's a lot of evidence of that, and there's also, I, I think, there's a kind of a relationship where you have, you know the media will toe the line on certain issues and, and accept instructions. You have the denotice system in the UK, which is, you know, where sort of a government can say to the, to the corporate media, well, these are, don't touch this issue. Don't get it into the news. And they'll, they'll go along with it. Saying, well, because this is national security, et cetera. And you can see how vulnerable to abuse that is. Um, and, but I think, I think that the penetration and the overlap is, is very significant. And certainly in terms of my own experience, say on the Syria issue, um, you know, I, 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 I've come to that conclusion that, um, it's not simply the kind of economic and political positioning of the mainstream media. There's also an awful lot of, um, revolving door activity going on and just straightforward cooperation. Um, especially on matters of national security and war. I mean, that's, that's always been a difficult area. But, you know, increasingly with COVID-19, COVID-19 is, is presented as this kind of crisis, emergency, state mm -hmm. of exception, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and so you can see the same thing going there. And, of course, we do know that that has been going on with the Twitter files. This is confirmed sort of empirically. You have this interface between the U.S., um, you know, federal government and big tech, and there's a censorship. And it's, as, as Matt Taibbi says in some of his interviews, you know, is, he was shocked at how organized it was. These are regular meetings, you know, so sort of got to get these people off and, and so on. Um, for example, the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, and, you know, that, that level of really quite blunt, um, you know, it's almost conspiracy in a way, is, is, is a reality. And, and again, as with many other 
aspects of what I study and talk about, COVID-19 has presented this in a way which is evidence and clearer, much better evidence and much clearer than it has been sort of prior to that, I think. And that's why there's so much awareness, of course, of all this now, why I think, you know, is trust in legacy media is flatlining, <laughs> I understand. I think it's on the floor, isn't it, basically? In fact, floor, that's why yeah. we exist. That's why we set up. Because yeah. there was that, um, it was a vacuum pretty well in, in, in our local market anyway. So, and I suppose yeah, you've got, um, you know, other uh, developments in the UK. There's GB News, though. I don't know if that goes all the way because they have to satisfy Ofcom and, and things like that too. So they're going to be careful. They're, they're constrained. They, they, they probably have big financial backers, but they're probably doing, so, uh, they're doing, they're, <sighs> They have some effect in terms of shaking things up, I think. But you know, in, in my experience in a UK context, you know, the the the, the really strong independent uh, entities such as UK Column and um, Off Guardian, for example. I mean, they're much smaller, but they still have quite extensive reach. But, yeah. but they are sort of you know very robust and strong, and they have good analysis and. Um, you know, they really are challenging power. I, I think GB you know, News is, is doing a, it's good because it's shaking things up, but it's probably not going as far as, as no. they need to. Um, but, you know, um, but th th there is, you know, as I say, as I said earlier on in the interview, there's a big struggle going on at the moment. And the authorities are increasingly wanting to just, we've got to just clamp down on censorship, censor through things such as the um, online safety bills, which they're trying to put in place, counter disinformation industry, etc. Um, but, you know, sort of <laughs> the truth keeps on popping up and people who are determined to yeah. write about the truth and research it keep on popping up. Um, so there is a big battle going on. Um, I shouldn't, no one should ever make predictions, but I oh, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> I think they'll lose. I think they'll I, lose. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because I, I think that, um, even if they get, they clamp down on the internet very aggressively, what will happen next is that all the people who put the time and energy into independent media will, um, communicate it out through other means. We do have, yeah. you know, we do have books. <laughs> Back to books. Yeah, yeah. Back to, the back to that. And, and, yeah, and you'll yeah. find that that will start to emerge. And so, so they, they can't keep this lid on this. And, and I think the broader context for, 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 the, for the Western liberal democracies is that we are in a period of significant transition in the international system. BRICS, the move to the multipolar. Yeah, what does BRICS mean? Do you think? Well, I, I think, you know, and, and I'm conscious that we're, we're, we're coming up to time. Um, yeah. The reality is that for the West, um, the West has been, some people call it an empire, but it's been dominant for a long time. Um, and it has benefited greatly from that position of dominance in the international system. Um, a lot of our wealth and so on has, is generated out of empire, real and, yes. yep. and, and colonialism. Conquering things. Conquering things, but also being, being you know, particularly in the in late 20th century, being on top of the pile. Yeah. And and every indicator we have now is that that's changing profoundly, um, and BRICS is part of that. Is a shift in the distribution of power, whether you want to call that economic or, or political or military power. These things sort of you know overlap, and that we're clearly going through that process at the moment. The, the Western wars, which you know, again, that's kind of my sort of essentially my area of particular academic focus. You know, the, the West, you know, has not been winning wars. It 
Afghanistan, for example, Syria, it failed to overthrow the Syrian government, still trying to. Ukraine, um, there is no indication to me that there is going to be anything other than a strategic defeat for NATO in the well, West. Big, t- big time, to, it looks like. Big, big time. time. Big time. Yeah. And so on. So, 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 so that's, that's gone. The military-industrial complex, which fuels that and drives that, that they'll keep on trying to... Is, is there another war we can go to? Yeah. But I think the reality has changed, that the writing should be on the wall for Western elites, that we're moving into a situation where we do not have the preponderance of of power, whether that's economic, political, or military. And the time now is to actually start to engage in a slightly less belligerent, more cooperative approach to other powers in the international system. And I think that what that means is that we have a a, a process of change across Western liberal democracies. And change always creates an opportunity for more greater dissensus, more questioning. I think, you know, as anyone who looks up up my work and and my commentary, you know, I think we're we're, we're steeped in lies in the West, whether it's in relation to 9-11, the wars, COVID-19. And, you know, I I think there's going to be an unraveling of that in the coming years as this kind of shift in the West's position of dominance, you know, occurs globally. So I I think, you know, know, we are going to lose one point I'd temper that with or caution is that, you know, there is this wider kind of technocratic centralization of power ideology, which we can see not just in the West, but also in China, especially in countries which are authoritarian, which are democratic. You can see the elites there sort of, you know, they're salivating it. Central bank digital currency. Does that mean I can control? (laughs) There's nothing holding holding them back at all, right? Nothing holding them back at all. And that that kind of, you know, and this is ultimately centralization of power. It's a technocratic movement and so on, getting control over people. You know, I think we have, that's the underlying risk to all peoples of the world. So whilst we might have this kind of end of the Western Empire, which is kind of like a good thing, because maybe there's going to be less wars being fought in the international system. Uh, We then have this underlying technocratic move. And so there's a struggle there for people in the West, but I also think there's a wider struggle for humanity to, to, you know, to fight back against, you know, whether it's, you know, Ident, you know, the, the central bank digital currencies, um, the uh, online identity, etc. All of these technologies that they have potentially in place to put us under surveillance and effectively control. These will just get abused. You know, we know this right from history. Any political science should, should notice that you allow concentration of power, it'll get abused. Yeah. This is why d- the idea for democracy emerged was to deal with the problems we had with kings. You have to find it back and well. get it back again. Find it, refind it. So I think we've got a broader struggle going on there. Yeah. Um, in the coming years on, on that front, it's been a really interesting chat, Dr. Piers Robinson. Thank you for coming on our radio station and sharing your insights and expertise. It's been really interesting. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.